Welcome, and thanks for listening to Balancing Boundaries podcast, where we seek to help you achieve success at work and within. I'm Taylor Williams. And I'm Colleen Hampton. We are two young attorneys trying to have it all. Balancing Boundaries is a self-empowerment series where we explore empowerment techniques to balance our priorities. Now, a reminder, although Taylor and I are both attorneys, nothing in this podcast is meant to serve as legal advice. And although Taylor and I are both passionate about self-improvement and mental health, we are not mental health professionals. In today's episode, we're exploring becoming an expert on yourself. I love this topic idea, and I'm so glad that we came up with it, um, you know, in one of our other discussions, because I think a lot of times uh, we think we know what we want or need or are interested in in life, but we don't really do the deep dive to explore and uh, understand what our motivations are. And I think um, possibly you can join me in this because I know you and I have been doing some soul searching lately. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think not only one, are we afraid to do the deep dive, like you just said, but two, I think we tend to like internally commit to this idea of what we think we want and then are afraid to kind of backtrack or adjust as we go, even though adjusting as we go is kind of the whole point of life, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think um, I, I think I think that goes into what it what does it mean to be an expert? So so tell me what what are your thoughts? Like how do you what is what does it mean to be an expert in yourself? Absolutely. So I think what sparked this conversation initially between the two of us um, was based on an excerpt of a quote that one of my Facebook friends had posted on his page. He's been doing um, a deep analysis on a lot of like COVID information um, that's been coming out. And he had like a really great explanation in terms of what is an expert and how do they form their decisions. And so should I read, read off a little bit of it? Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Um, so his name is Tong Wang. And he said, I'm not an expert, but I really hope to become one someday. The thing about experts is they're often wrong, but they are quick and transparent about why they've changed their mind. Experts do not overstate, intentionally mislead, or reach for scapegoats. Then he kind of goes into why he thinks it would be difficult to be an expert today, because right now, especially with COVID, experts and politicians, the information that politicians are stating is being politicized as flip-flopping. So then he goes on to explain flip-flopping doesn't really exist in science, where decisions are made based on the best available information at the time. Experts adjust their opinions as new information becomes available. In other words, politicians are crucified for flip-flopping on moral values. However, within their usual circles, scientists are instead condemned for a dogmatic inability to adjust to newly available data. If anything, I expect the best scientists to refine their opinions over time and be open-minded towards change. So I thought that was really insightful, mainly because I think in terms, at least in terms of myself, I've been hesitant to become an expert on myself because I feel like I'm flip-flopping like the politician way. But I think becoming an expert and leaning into that scientist side is totally crucial. 
Yeah, because I think I know I can relate to having uh, a real sense of almost shame around flip-flopping when it comes to knowing what you want out of life, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I had originally wanted to go to law school and then it didn't work out the first time and I had to take a couple of years off and start a career. But while I was working in that job, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was flip-flopping all around. I had dreams of becoming a tattoo artist who owned a veterinarian clinic that, um, you know, did some law stuff on the side. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I was, I was flip-flopping everywhere in my, in my personal life. Um, you know, it, it's, it's easy to, to get kind of uh, stuck on a dogmatic approach to who you are. If you've always had a dream that you were going to be a lawyer, what do you do if that dream doesn't work out? Um, you know, do you, do you stay stuck on that? Um, is that helpful? I don't know. You know, it's, it's tough, but I think the shame that we associate with flip-flopping when it comes to ourselves is not helpful because, you know, it's by doing all that flip-flopping that I found my actual path and I found the way I wanted to go. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think you're spot on. You know, one of the things that that excerpt really spoke to me about, or some, one of the things that really resonated with me was that um, he said, he observed that scientists are quick and transparent about when they're wrong. Um, and again, and so hard to do with yourself. It is. I was going to say, I feel, I know I have a lot of shame around the idea that some things that I've believed for a long time could be wrong, you know, um, about myself, you know, if I, I always held myself out to be kind of this tough as nails, hardworking kind of workaholic person. Right. But that image of myself was something I created when I was younger. And I thought that that was the best way to live. Um, now I'm a little bit older and I, I don't want that life. So I have some, I have some, some struggle there around deconstructing that image and um, being quick to change that image is tough for me. I haven't, the, the quickness and the transparency is really hard when it's self work, when it's, when it's about digging inside and finding the truth within yourself. That's rough. That is so true. That just made me think of another thing I had screenshotted today and meant to tell you about. Um, so one of the things I've seen on social media today is it's a screenshot of someone's tweet. I think, I mean, I don't have Twitter, um, but, <laughs> but, um, the name is Miss Toller and it was reblogged on the Instagram handle phenomenal. And it said, normalize changing your opinion on something after learning new information. It's okay. I promise. Yeah. I just thought that was so like revolutionary that is so brilliant and simple and you know it's funny because um that's exactly not to bring it all back to law but like that's that's basically what we learned in law school right that you know um that you know, one side is going to argue something one way and the other side is going to argue something the other way and the judge is the one who's going to say well this is the way it's always been done but you've presented new information so we're going to change the law a little bit and i'm going to say this <laughs> totally especially as attorneys right it's kind of a flip of the coin on which client walks into your office what side you'll be arguing and that's something that you colleen taught me in moot court 
<laughs> the moot court days. Um, yes. so, you know, for uh, everyone who is listening who may not have gone to law school, do you want to explain a little bit about what moot court is? Yeah. So moot court is essentially the appellate level version of your stereotypical mock trial, right? So the case, the fake case has already been decided and you're going before a panel of judges to determine whether or not the case has been decided correctly or incorrectly. I love it. That's a great explanation. Yeah, it's it's like uh, playing, it's like imaginary court of appeals or imaginary arguments yeah. before the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so in the, in the competition, it's super common to have one person go up and argue um, one side and then have that same person go up and argue directly against themselves, which is pretty counterintuitive, but happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that is really humbling about uh, law school uh, that makes us better lawyers is that, uh, you know, we have to look at things from both sides in school. Uh, once we get jobs, you know, we're kind of hired to be you know, the expert on one side, but, you know, in school, we look at things from both sides and sometimes we argue things from both sides um, and it helps us understand the problem better. But I wonder how often do we turn that skill inward to ourselves, you know, and, and really question our motivations or really question our limiting beliefs. I know I've been doing a lot of work lately with limiting beliefs, um, trying to understand yeah. Are, are these things that were helpful to me at one point in my life, are they still helpful or are they holding me back? Are they preventing me from kind of achieving the goals I want to achieve or achieving the kind of happiness and balance I want to see in my daily life? Um, and, you know, it's not always intuitive to turn that, that laser focus analysis inward. But when you do, I think it can be hugely beneficial. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Taylor? No, absolutely. The um, One of the things that I started thinking about as you were just speaking, and now I've totally lost my train of thought. Enough. Right? <laughs> um, oh, shoot. You know, it's okay because I can always, we can, and when we edit this, we can edit out the pauses and stuff. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Thank God, honestly. Um. Shit, what was it that you were just talking about? Can you say some yeah. of the things again you just said? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, we were talking about kind of examining our limiting beliefs, like to become an expert in ourselves, like really evaluating both sides of our beliefs. Are they, are they helping us or are they hindering us now? And Oh, yes. That was making me think of our conversation a couple of weeks ago about limiting beliefs that was really just changed my whole life path not to be dramatic but totally did um was the interesting thing I've come to realize about limiting beliefs is that we a lot of times I don't think we even realize we have them because they are beliefs that we just kind of assume and take as fact we don't even think to question them because we don't see the fallacy until someone else points it out. Oh, you know, that is, that feels so true to me. Like that is brilliant because that is part of the struggle and the shame. I think that I felt when I was starting to examine these limiting beliefs. And so for, for listeners, I, I, I kind of see limiting beliefs as things that we 
have always believed and always held on to, maybe even from early childhood, about ourselves or about the world uh, at large that they I took as a truth, I took as an absolute. And I, I never really questioned until now I keep bumping up against these ideas. And now I'm thinking, maybe it wasn't an absolute truth. Maybe there are two sides to every story, or maybe this absolute truth that I've thought was right all my life is absolutely wrong and not right at all. Uh, right. I think I can give two examples of limiting truths and they're both, they're both very personal. The first is our limiting yeah, beliefs. Like sure. the, the first limiting belief that I think was really, is really challenging and it's a very self-esteem related belief, which is, um, you know, I always kind of have been a little bit more of a tomboy build than your average girl. Um, and so growing up at some point, um, either through my parents or through like society at large, I got it in my head that the way my body is built is disgusting and ugly. And so, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, I totally, I totally identify and validate those feelings because I've had them myself, but I feel it's very crucial to point out to you and all the listeners that Colleen is absolutely beautiful <laughs> inside and out. And I, I think that but please continue. <laughs> and, and I think that kind of what that really, so that's a great example of a limiting belief, right? Because it's something that's so totally. personal to me that I, I struggle to even share it with my friends and my loved ones. Like it's hard to even talk about, um, you know, I think, we, I think you just stepped on something I think is so important. The essence of one, not realizing it's a limiting belief, but also even kind of like letting yourself get into that territory where you're thinking about like even creating a thought around it, yeah. let alone sharing it with somebody else is scary as hell. It really is. To even verbalize that thought to yourself is terrifying. It is. It's really tough. I mean, because, you know, to, to unpack and get down to that level, I have to go through so much um, and become so vulnerable to myself um, that I don't, I don't like doing it. I don't like being vulnerable. I don't like feeling like all of my inner beliefs are kind of out on the table to be examined. But when I keep bumping right. into these low self-esteem issues about having a lack of confidence at work or feeling like I don't bring value to the situations I'm in, you know, I keep running into that over and over and over again. And when I finally get all the way down to it, I think it stems from this sense, this early sense that I developed that I was somehow broken. I was somehow unworthy and it just permeates, you know, it kind of, it kind of permeates things. So now it's limiting my happiness. Like it might have, let's say like in high school, feeling like I was somehow deficient might've helped me kind of grow thicker skin or um, I don't know, maybe even motivated me to work out more or something, you know, something to improve my situation. So I wasn't as vulnerable around it. We build these walls. Right. But I don't, those walls aren't helping me anymore. It's not enough anymore. I need something deeper and truer. I need a better, deeper source of confidence. And I think the only way I get to it is by tearing down that limiting belief. Um, and really looking at it and questioning it, you know, and so that's, I've been doing a lot of work around that lately. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I have two kind of questions for you mm -hmm. in regard to that. So one, 
what kind of, I mean, and this can be specific to your, to this example, this limiting belief, or just more generally, what kind of things signaled to you, one, that you had this um, limiting belief, and then two, that it was incorrect, or it was a fallacy? Yeah, so that's, so that's great. I think, I think I might be able to share that with a better example that's less personal because I think, yeah. you know, talking about self-image is really tough and really personal, or personal, but if I give you this other example, I think it might be a lot more clear um, because it involves a colleague that we both know. So, <laughs> um, okay. so growing up, I always had this idea that people who owned their own businesses were unhappy and miserable and unsuccessful because um, my parents, had their own business several times while I was growing up and they always seemed to work really, really hard and be miserable and not be available when we were kids. You know, they always seemed really down and unhappy. And I got it in my head that the only way to be happy and successful as an adult was to work for a large company because you couldn't work for yourself. There's no way that that would work. Right. That is so fascinating. Right? Yeah. It's such a strange belief to develop as a child. Right. Well, then I've grown and now I'm well into my adult years and I, um, you know, I, I look around and I have lots of friends who are self-employed and are happy and successful. Not only that, but like this whole entrepreneurial like spirit has taken over and now it's like cool to be an entrepreneur when when my family were doing their own businesses and and starting their own businesses it was like a shameful thing for for my brothers and my sister and I to talk about like it meant that we were unstable and that we you know didn't have a solid source of income and that we were risking everything and we were living by like the seat of our pants and so it was a shameful thing for us as kids to experience but now as an adult, I look around and my friends who are self-employed, like they have the best work-life balance. They thriving. Yeah, they're thriving. And, and we even both know somebody who's very financially set, who's owned, right. owned their own business, didn't even go to college. And they have like, you know, the best life that for them, you know, it's a perfect life for them. And they created that themselves by through like hard work and in, in their own business. So the signals to me that my limiting belief about being self-employed was, was wrong was that as an adult, I started seeing all of these good examples of people who were living contrary to this belief. And it was easier to see it out in the world than it was to see it close at home, you know? Totally. Yeah. Seeing for yourself that it's that something can be the opposite of what's ingrained into us. That is a game changer. Yeah. Well, and first you have to be open to the information, right? You know, I think. Totally. I'm sure that there were people, I'm sure that my friends in high school and grade school, and I'm sure that they had parents who were self-employed. Some of them were very, very happy and successful. But when you're a kid, you know, your reality is your family. And so it's interesting to me to trace the origin of this belief all the way back to this time where my entire reality was just my family experience. And yes. And oh, go for it. Yeah. I was just gonna say, and, and acknowledging that that's not true. It doesn't have to be true. 
um, even though that's the life I experienced. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think you nailed it on the head when you were saying it's my reality. When you were describing your upbringing, I was thinking, you know, all of these like shame associations that you were experiencing when your family was going through creating their own business. I wondered what that looked like to people on the outside as they were perceiving it. And I would be shocked if anyone else had those same associations. I think our reality is definitely not just the events we experience, but very much the lens that we're perceiving them through. I think that that is so true. And I think, yeah, because now when I look at people who are, I, I admire people who have their own business. I admire entrepreneurs for being brave and, you know, like embracing the qualities and the, and the priorities that matter to them and building a life around that. I think that that is like a, such a brave form of self-expression, but yeah. now as an adult, that, that is my reality, but it's conflicting with this limiting belief that I formed when I was just a kid um, and feeling all of the ramifications of just having kind of this tumultuous life um, growing up and seeing how unhappy my parents were. And, you know, I think even now, if I talk to them about it, I think they would, they fondly recall those years where they had their own business. I don't think they were as miserable yeah. as they seemed, you know? Um, but it's always different when you're a kid, you know? <laughs> um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the reason I know that my limiting beliefs are incorrect, I think is a lot to do with the fact that I have so many friends that I can ask questions to, and I can actually talk about, um, you know, have a dialogue about their experiences as business owners. And I can see firsthand that my ideas about what it, what it's like owning a business is completely contrary to that limiting belief. So it's a little tougher when you, when you think about those types of signals and, um, identifiers, when you apply them to something self-esteem related, you know, because it's so right. personal to who we are. Um, it's so hard. So body image issues, I think are really tough and I'm still working through those. Um, but you know, I, I did, I started doing this thing, um, where I'm journaling a lot and I, um, wrote down at the top of one of my journal prompts that I feel like I am unworthy but dot, dot, dot. And then underneath it, I wrote a list of, of tons and tons of things that I've done that I feel like illustrate that I'm not broken and deficient and unworthy. Oh, uh, I love that because I know you are so worthy <laughs> and I could sit here and spew thousands of things. <laughs> but I think that's so good for you to take the time to force yourself to write it out yeah, and really acknowledge it, not just a fleeting thought, but you know, the time it takes to write it out. Oh yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and you really sit with it when you're doing that, when you're doing that exercise, it, you really sit with it. Like, um, in my experience, you know, one of the things that I, I wrote, well, obviously, cause I'm a recent law school graduate. One of the things at the top of the list was I graduated law school and passed the bar exam. Now that's a hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a really huge achievement that I don't even think my eight-year-old or five-year-old self could ever have imagined and certainly not understood. You know, I, I am not deficient. I am not unworthy. And here's a whole list of reasons why I am a valuable, interesting, 
you know, whole human person. And it, it was really helpful. I try to um, go back and look at it from time to time just to keep myself positive, you know, because when you confront your limiting beliefs, it can be really negative. It can really be hard work. And so having something around to remind you <laughs> of the positive things. Yeah. Is <laughs> I think you're so right. I think the ability to ask questions and then to get feedback when you, when you do share the limiting belief, right? So first you're, you're keeping it a little internal. Maybe you're asking questions to test your fallacy and see that it's wrong. And then you share with them, this is kind of what I had thought growing up. I have found in all of the limiting belief work that I've been doing with you, whether I share it with you or whether I share it with other people in my life that I trust, their feedback has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive. That's fantastic. So it's, it's kind of like then how do we get ourselves to talk to ourselves like how we would talk to our friend, right? If our friend came to us with this limiting belief, like perfect example, just with you talking about the body image. Issues. Yes. It's like me, I'm like holding my breath, trying not to chime in and be like, <laughs> stop, you're perfect, you're beautiful, <laughs> you know? But, but it's the ability to really take those things and, and feel them ourselves, not just say them, but really get to the point where you identify with. Yeah. So I don't think I've gotten to the point yet where I identify with the positive affirmations that I've been telling, you know, myself, one of the things that I have been reading a lot about as, as part of confronting limiting beliefs is this concept of reparenting yourself. And it kind of sounds a little hokey or new agey and, um, I'm living. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. it, it I know, I know what you're talking about it, but share with the group. Yes. Okay. So reparenting yourself involves going back and evaluating, like, let's say a traumatic event that happened when you were a child. Um, and, and now as an adult looking at that event and giving the child version of yourself, the kind of care and support and attention and validation that you wish you would have had at that moment, but you didn't have for whatever reason. Um, you know, one of the events in my life that it's funny, I, I sometimes forget that this even happened, but it is one of my earliest memories and it's very vivid. Um, and it was a, an opportunity to reparent myself. So um, this example is, uh, I was a little girl in a car seat. So, and this was back in the early, no, this would have been the late, no, the early eighties. Yeah. This would have been like mid to early eighties. So the fact that I was in a car seat is pretty remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> so that tells you how small I was. I was in a car seat and I was in the back uh, of my mom's car. It was a silver car, like a hatchback, I think. And my older brother who is only a year and a half older than me was sitting in the front seat of the car not in a car seat because we didn't have booster seats for kids back then. And he was buckled in. Um, we were going up a big hill in Seattle where we lived at the time. And um, we got hit, I think from behind, not entirely sure, but it was a very violent hit. Um, from my opinion, as a small child in a car seat, I was terrified. Yeah. It was the first car accident I was ever in that I can remember. And I remember being terrified about this accident. Like I wasn't hurt. My brother wasn't hurt. My mom wasn't hurt. But the idea that you could get hurt 
like that you could get hit and that it would be that loud and you would shake that much. And, you know, the force of it all, it was very scary. Even now talking about it, it kind of takes my breath away, this memory, right? It's traumatic. It was. It was so traumatic. (laughs) So I remember crying and I remember telling my mom I was scared. And I remember her kind of snapping back at me at the time um, that I was fine. And I should just calm down. Mm. And I know that's not a big deal. And I'm sure, you know, you know, if I were in the same situation as a parent, especially in my mid to late twenties, as a parent of two kids who was just in a car accident, I'm sure I would have done the same because I think my mom was in adult mode. She was leaving the car and going to talk to the other drivers. And now I know as an adult, she was probably exchanging insurance information. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So it was a lot. Right. It was a lot weirder, <laughs> but <laughs> I felt totally isolated. Like mm-hmm. I felt so alone and terrified. I remember like the fear shaking through me and like, I, it's such a vivid memory. I mean, whew, okay. Take a deep breath. <laughs> I just want to hold baby Colleen in my arms right now. I know. Well, so validate her feelings. Yeah. So I had this great opportunity to reparent myself and I, I imagine one night I was kind of meditating. Um, and when I meditate, I don't really, I don't fully embrace the meditation unless I'm at yoga. <laughs> if I'm meditating, it's usually because I'm listening to some um, like classical music that doesn't have any lyrics. And I'm just thinking, you know, I'm just kind of, my eyes are closed. Yeah. And I was thinking um, about this, this memory and I was kind of feeling it all. And then um, instead of my mom being there, I imagined adult Colleen opening the back door, taking baby Colleen out and holding her and squeezing her and telling her she was safe and everything was okay. And that nobody was hurt and everyone was safe and fine. And just like very soothing and, you know, a tight hug to kind of like reinforce that she was safe. And I, and I just felt such a release from, from playing this out in my mind, um, that it felt very freeing. Um, it was such a, I feel like I can feel my chest open as you <laughs> describe it. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of how I felt even now telling you about that. Like it's made me, my shoulders have dropped. Like my chest is out. Like I don't feel the tension I was feeling. It's not, the stress is gone. Like it was such a great experience focusing on that memory and then giving myself exactly what I needed. Um, now, of course, this is all in your mind. And so a lot of people might struggle with that. You know, a lot of people might struggle. Well, it's not really, you're not really reparenting yourself. You're not really making a difference, but believe me when I tell you it made a physical difference in the way I process that memory. Like even now, like it, it makes me feel better to remember that knowing that I could give myself exactly what I needed right then. So kind of reliving the memory and reparenting yourself in that memory can be very freeing. And so that was a good example of one that I did. Um, my therapist also recommended um, another one where like you could write yourself a letter to your baby self and be like, and tell your baby self everything you needed to hear, you know? Um, oh, that's another good one. That. Yeah. <laughs> but I think because the, the issue with that one was so, it was so fear oriented and so like, physical that that was such a visceral memory that reimagining it with my adult self being there able to give my my inner child everything I needed to hear it was really helpful that I'm sure it's not only helpful just 
in that isolated memory, right? But also like the, um, just the mentality, the framework that's come from it. Like you were just talking about how going through that exercise, you were able to realize that you could give yourself everything you needed. You can provide that for yourself. And that's applicable in future situations as well, right? I mean, yeah. it's a total shift in mindset. It really is. So, you know, it's a really good point because I've also been, um, you know, I, I think we spoke a little bit earlier about kind of my uh, initiative to do some self-esteem work and confidence building. And of course, yeah. there are tons of little videos you can watch out on YouTube about how to improve your confidence and, and all of this. And um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was uh, the speaker, I can't remember his name. He's, he has a lot of YouTube videos about confidence building. So I'm sure he's probably famous in that circle, but I can't remember his name. And, um, but he did have a really cool video where he said, you know, ultimately these, he was analyzing characters from TV shows and movies. And he was like, obviously, you know, and I'm sorry, the last, okay. <laughs> he was saying the essence of these characters confidence comes from this absolute knowledge that they, they know they can handle any situation that comes their way. And that really stuck out because where I am in my life, I really like, I logically feel like I could handle just about anything that comes my way. But if that's, if that's the case, then why don't I have the same confidence that these characters have? And of course they're fictional, so it's a little different, but you know, um, if, if that's at the essence of confidence, why don't I have that? If I already feel like I could handle just about anything that life throws at me, um, so embracing that framework, I, I think when you peel back the layers, I probably don't fully believe that I can handle anything that comes my way. I, I probably only believe it at like a surface level because I've handled a move and I've handled law school and I've handled, you know, paying bills and, and being an adult and all these things. But I'm, I think there's probably a big part of me that doesn't fully buy into this concept that I could handle it you know, whatever oh my it gosh, is. It's imposter syndrome. Yes. Totally. Oh. <laughs> we take those examples and we are um, downplaying them in regard to ourselves, right? So you, all those things you just listed, your ability to move and go to law school and pass the bar and things like that. We can say to ourselves and generalize, I can handle anything, but internally we're thinking, well, I mean, I can handle another move. I can handle going to law school again or passing another bar, right? We view them as isolated incidents as opposed to in a holistic sense. Right. Oh, that is such a good point. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Because I definitely view these accomplishments as like, you know, achievements. They're great and I should be proud of them. But then like, they don't, they don't represent this inner well of strength and flexibility and capability that is actually there, but I don't see it that way. I only see it as these little individual isolated incidents of achievement. <laughs> right. That's exactly. Imposter syndrome, which I hate. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I saw something so funny the other day that it was saying like, imposter syndrome is being concerned that you have imposter syndrome about imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> like you like you're like 
but imposter syndrome, I'm probably not at that level where it's really imposter syndrome. So if I say that, you know, am I being exaggerating or whatnot? It's like, that's a, you're doing it now. Right. <laughs> well, I probably don't have imposter syndrome as bad as so-and-so who's way better and got a way higher position and, you know, way more important oh. than me. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Comparison really is a thief of joy. It is. Whoever said that, so accurate. Oh my gosh. So do you think, okay, so here's the big question. Do you think you can become an expert in yourself without doing a deep dive into your limiting beliefs? Wow. Let me think about that for a sec. Because if I'm going to say no, right, then what's, um, then what's the other way? Right. Well, so, yeah, I, th- I think, I think you're definitely touching it. I think you are, because I think that there are stages of knowledge, like, for example, like, I guess maybe do we become deeper as we get older? Maybe, um, mm. because I feel like when I was in my early twenties, I had everything like laid out. I knew exactly what I wanted. And it was only when life threw me a curveball and I didn't get into law school and I had to kind of recalibrate my life. It was only then that I had to, to evaluate anything up until that point, I had everything on track and I knew what I wanted. At least I thought I did. Right. Oh God. (laughs) So I wonder if it isn't more about plateaus. So like, you know, you know yourself at this, at this level and then it plateaus and now you either have to dig deep and go up or go down to find a new level of self-knowledge and expertise to navigate this new scenario. That is so true. Yeah. I think you're right. Like the mystics of the universe or the random things that life throws at us provides us this opportunity where we can see it as a nudge right to reassess what we're thinking um or to just let us let it pass us by and do nothing and which option is really going to lead to your like nirvana your happiness yeah because I think uh our individual happiness is not is something that we have to be brave enough to seek out. And I don't know that I was brave enough to seek it out when I was 20 or even like in my teens, you know, I think, Mm. I think uh, with maturity and not that I'm super old or anything, but like with maturity, I think comes this insight for me that I'm not as interested in what other people think about me Uh, self-esteem issues and body issues, imaging aside or whatever, but I'm not as interested in what other people think about me as I used to be. Um, Yeah. And so it starts to open my horizons for what happiness looks like. Happiness looked very different when I was 22 than it does now. Um, Oh God, that's so true. (laughs) I don't think it's necessarily because of my, um, you know, my therapy work or my, my life experiences. I think it might just be my mindset shifting, you know, and, and being able to look at things and value different things 
Um, so, you know, in some ways it's about being quick and transparent and, and allowing yourself to evolve just because something made you happy or the idea of something made you happy in your twenties doesn't mean you have to be married to that idea in your thirties. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think one thing that goes right along with it that you have said to me in prior conversations is not viewing things like when you develop these new perspectives, right? Like not looking back and viewing those instances as a mistake, but viewing them as something that's helped you evolve to get to where you are now. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that kind of goes along with the, what we were talking about very early on was about flip-flopping and um, how, how it's kind of looked down upon if, you know, in, in pop culture, you know, if a politician or somebody flip-flops, you know, I've always, I've always had kind of a different opinion on that. And I think you touched on it is that, you know, my past experiences allowed me to brought me to this horizon. And from this horizon, I can see different things more clearly now. So, um, you know, flip-flopping can be annoying when you're a leader trying to lead a country or a state or whatever, or even a law firm or a business. Um, but shifting your beliefs, changing your mind is not a weakness. Um, not necessarily a weakness anyway, uh, because it can really open a lot um, of doors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's like with changing your mind is it's like, it's almost like it's inching you closer to finding your inner truth. I love that. I, so I can share an example of kind of like the limiting belief and how it's evolved for me. Yes. Um, that you have helped me through. So I, my whole life, I've been toying with these two passions of mine, right? So one being the law um, and one being mental health. So perfect example, when I was an undergraduate, I was a psychology and legal studies double major with a certificate in criminal justice. And I was trying to decide, am I going to go to law school or am I going to go to grad school for psychology? Um, I actually opted to go to grad school for psychology right up until like the last minute. I had joined research labs and really had started down that road for about a year. And then at the last minute, kind of jumped ship and went to the legal profession. And I told myself, you know, well, I'll go to law school first. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not totally ready to give up on that dream yet. So I'm going to go to law school first. And so all along the way, internally I think at first I've been was scared to admit to myself and then I became a little bit more comfortable admitting to myself is wondering whether I made the wrong choice should I have gone to grad school for psychology should I have pursued that avenue sometimes I feel a little bit like a fish out of water with other attorneys um I have a totally different communication style than most attorneys things Mm -hmm. like that And it wasn't until coming to this crossroads, right? So now we've both graduated law school, passed the bars. We are both full-fledged attorneys. And I'm considering now pursuing the psychology route. I had this limiting belief of, was it a mistake? Was it all a mistake that I went to law school? And 
going off of that, is it a mistake if I try to force these two interests together? Am I, am I picking an area of psychology that is um, easier to transition to based on my legal background than other areas of psychology? Um, that kind of was pulling me down a different direction. <laughs> well, no, I know, I know everything you're talking about. And I think one of the things that we probably want to back up and look at real quick is that this idea that you were making mistakes, right? Um, because yeah. I think mistake is a word that has in it this kind of subtext of something negative. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think exploring your interests, I don't think is a mistake. I think, but for whatever reason, it's so easy to say, I went to law school and now I don't know if I want to practice law. And, and like looking back on all of that and being hurt and angry and sad and just so disillusioned because now you're like, well, what I went, I went to law school. I have to be a lawyer. What, you know what I mean? Like, so there's this kind of, um, dogmatic approach to looking at something we've done and saying, well, now this determines the rest of my life. I have to do this thing. And it's just, it's just not true, but it doesn't mean that the experience wasn't valuable. I think going to law school was valuable, first of all, because you met me and we became besties. So <laughs> honestly, so true. If nothing else came out of it, like still best decision I've ever made. <laughs> but, you know, it does like there was a lot that I think even the people I know who don't practice in a traditional method or in a traditional way, the people who don't practice, they still are a different person because they went to law school and it still is empowering and improves your confidence in the way you think and the way you solve problems, I think is very different once you become a lawyer. Um, I know, for instance, that is, oh, go yeah. ahead. Cause I, I was going to give the example about Sandy, our friend, um, who isn't practicing, but she, she decided she wants to start her own business. And so she just, even though she has her own job, her full-time job, and is not based in law, she feels fully confident to start a business, to file all the paperwork. She knows exactly how to yeah. go about doing all that, how to research that, how to get that done. And I think a lot of people today wouldn't feel comfortable doing that without asking for help. She feels totally comfortable doing that on her own because she knows how to research it and how to pay into detail and how to read statutes and, and understand what they're saying. And so, you know, I think it's very empowering even if you don't practice in a traditional way. That is so true. And as you were saying that it made me think of, it connects to, those are things I can think individually, right? Obviously law school has changed the way I think. Law school has made me think more critically and I see it as an asset, but do potential employers see it as an asset or how can I really translate this as opposed to just saying it's a transferable skill and a buzzword yeah. in my interview <laughs> I think it's the again we are so critical of ourselves that we are discounting it I, right I went through the same schooling as our friend who is starting her own business and creating all these things and I'm super nervous about branching out and starting a business because I feel like I don't have the expertise to do so. But that's 
a yes. limiting belief. Yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, there's some big mystery behind it. It's something that is unknown, you know? Um, and so we, we kind of make it a scary thing, but really, um, we have the skills, uh, and, and you don't have to go to law school to have these skills, but it's just a good kind of example of how your life experiences can really empower you to tackle obstacles that you would otherwise be afraid to tackle. I know I had a similar um, conversation with this friend of ours, uh, who was considering going back to school to get an executive MBA. And, you know, I think, I think education is great. I love, I liked being in school. I didn't love law school because it's torture, but (laughs) I loved, I loved undergrad and I loved (laughs) high school. And like, you know, it was, I liked, I was that school nerd person who liked going to school. Um, (laughs) So I, I hear this and and I hear a friend who says, I want to go get a master's degree. And I think to myself, why you, I think you want to do this because you're scared. I think you have all of the information and skills and qualities necessary to do that job because she happens to have a law degree and pass the bar. Why do you need an executive MBA on top of that? You know, um, I think it's scary to trust your own skill set. I think it's scary to. I think it's scary to trust your own skills. I think it's scary to, to trust like that whole list that I wrote down of all the reasons why I'm worthy. You know, it's scary to believe that that's true. (laughs) So I think, yeah, as professionals, especially, right. Especially when you've gone through expensive schooling, you are used to getting the gold star, right. You get the direct feedback. I mean, in law school, it, it pushes out, you get, you know, there's one big test at the end of the semester and that's your grade and that's that. But you still get that satisfaction of a grade. Whereas these self-discoveries we're making about ourselves, there's, unless we engage with our friends and unless we open ourselves up to these experiences and talk about them, we're not getting any feedback it makes it so much easier to just push, push it's it away. True, you know, and it, it's hard sometimes to celebrate our own self-discovery achievements, um, you know, because who are you going to talk to about them? You know, there's still kind of a stigma on mental health and mm. personal development. Um, so it's, it's difficult, but um, I very much encourage everyone to celebrate their self-discovery achievements because they're big deals. Like it, being more in tune with who you are is the key to happiness. I think in my life anyway, (laughs) I totally agree. And I would absolutely love if any like listeners would leave a comment or shoot us an email or anything to talk about the self-discoveries you're making in your life. I think even just practicing with a stranger, you know, sending us something written out, it's making you take the time to make that self-assessment and then think about, you know, who in my life do I trust that I can go to and talk about these things with, or if you don't feel comfortable talking about it with someone in your life, then 10 out of 10, really a hundred out of 10. I think everybody should go to therapy. (laughs) That might be a whole nother episode because I love therapy. (laughs) I am so pro therapy, Um, (laughs) uh, which is unusual. 
to 100%. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, exactly. That, it, oh that was God. absolutely how we bonded. And, um, and I, I just want to point out like, so it, for everyone who may not know, like it's very unusual for attorneys to be pro therapy because I think there's a big stigma in the attorney world uh, around people seeking help, but it's a completely unnecessary stigma because people who seek help and who talk to therapists, I think are better prepared to deal with the challenges of everyday life than people who are struggling alone isolated and afraid. And, and so I definitely encourage you to find a good therapist. Um, and like I said, that could be a whole nother topic because I'm so pro therapy. <laughs> yes. I let's do it, Colleen. Let's do a topic on adding it to the therapy. list. <laughs> we could, we could talk for days about that. I know we both. Have a lot <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I think maybe that should be another goal of our community. We should try to set up something where we can celebrate each other's achievements, self-discovery achievements. Um, and uh, yeah, create a community yeah. online, maybe through Instagram or something like that, where we can kind of support each other um, because that is really important. And not everybody has a tailor or a Colleen in their life that they can turn to for positivity and self-improvement empowerment. <laughs> true which makes me so sad so yeah let's let's do it let's create a community maybe we could do like a Facebook group or you and I can brainstorm and think on that because I I love it I I think other people would love it too because it's so it's so valuable to me um and like our entire friend group that we have from law school is kind of built around this whole idea of celebrating each other so um I know it works for others (laughs) yes yes so true. Yeah. If you guys have suggestions on like ways that we can make this podcast more community centered, um, like shoot us an email. We'll it's um, balancing boundaries, one, two, three at gmail.com, which we'll give you again at the end of the podcast episode. But yeah, we're open to really any, I like to think we're pretty open-minded. I think we are. Yeah. I think we're probably running out of time. We're getting close to an hour. Do you want to wrap up? Yeah. Do you have any closing? Yeah. You know, I, I think that, I think I really, really appreciate your friend's comment about becoming an expert. And I think it was really insightful um, because I think we can, we can appreciate the scientific method and the way scientists revise their opinions and their positions. Like I know when I was a kid, Pluto was a planet and it's not a planet anymore, you know? So things change. I think we need to have that same level of acceptance for the way we change as we age or as things in our life change, how our opinions and definitions and beliefs change. And we need to have more acceptance of that. And I think if we do, we'll be able to better balance every, all of our competing priorities. So I think I just want to say thank you for sharing that comment that your friend had posted. I I love it. It's very insightful and I really appreciate it. Are you still there, Taylor?
That's it for today, friends. I'm Colleen Hampton. And I'm Taylor Williams. And you've been listening to Balancing Boundaries. If you liked today's episode, please hit the like button and subscribe. We welcome your feedback and topic suggestions. Please leave a comment or shoot us an email at balancingboundaries123 at gmail.com. That's balancingboundaries123 at gmail.com. Until next time, stay balanced, friends.